I want to just start with uh, giving you a little window on the Dharma in Israel um, because it's just so fascinating. Um, Tovana is an organization I started, the Israel Insight Society, uh, about 20, 25 years ago. Um, it now has 40 to 45 retreats every year. There are thousands of people. They're like 2,000 people sit retreats, retreats every year, and thousands of people are sitting classes uh, all through the country and groups. Um, we have programs that in half, more than half the prisons in the country, half the schools in the country, um, we go out to the Palestinian areas with uh, bringing Israelis and Palestinians together um, and doing, I would say, action or activism or Dharma-inspired activism uh, in the heat of the uh, conflict. Um, we have programs on wise aging, uh, and on, uh, and we have a program that goes out to cancer patients all over the country um, who can't leave their houses, so we bring meditation to them. And it's mostly done by volunteers. That means every retreat is 100% dana. Nobody has to pay a penny. And we, it somehow works. <laughs> we don't have a rich sponsor, but it does work. Um, so I just want to tell you that, that it, that's happening in a country with the, uh, a few million people population, which is uh, really amazing. And I think one of the things is, in a way, dukkha, the pain of existence, is kind of out there. And so it really does, in a way, uh, energize people to look for um, an answer. And so I think that the fact that the, the dukkha, the pain of life, is not so big, People still have, you know, sit in coffee houses in Tel Aviv. But it's always there. So that energized, I think, the interest in, uh, in, in, in Dharma practice and liberation. Um, what was amazing is I wrote this book uh, two years ago, and uh, it's called Awakening in Daily Life. And it's not a beginner's book. I don't do that. Uh, ABC mindfulness. It's just, it goes much further and much deeper into a deep dharma, uh, but with a daily life approach. And I thought, well, there's a few people who will be interested in the dharma community. It was 18 weeks, number one bestseller uh, in the country on the list of nonfiction books, which I was in shock. Uh, it's not an ego thing. It's not for, it doesn't matter to me, but what it told me was the hunger for teachings. And I got invited to one or two pubs and bars after that by students. And um, so I've been doing, I went around 30 in the last two years, 30 bars and pubs in Israel, giving teachings and doing meditation. The beers are sitting there on the table and people are going, dropping into meditation. If you look on my website, you can find pictures. And, um, and, but as, uh, uh, looking at it more seriously, why I do that is, the young people have lost their way. And they're really, and it's not just Israel. And it's really a feeling that the young people need meaning. And the meaning is not just mindfulness. When people come to me and say, well, if I practice mindfulness, will I be happy and everything will be all right? No. <laughs> Actually, no. <laughs> 
But if I practice Dharma, yes. Because it goes much deeper into a whole different view of reality. And that's what's needed today, especially in these difficult times. So um, the talk tonight is um, in that spirit. And I've chosen equanimity as the um, subject for this evening. Uh, because we are living in difficult times, and they are, these are times of a kind of civilization uh, crisis, uh, which is not just Israel. Of course, it's right here uh, in America and everywhere. And, um, and so in these times, we really do need a different view of reality. So I've chosen equanimity, but of course equanimity is only one of many qualities that we need to develop in order to meet the challenges of today. But it's an interesting one. We need to go beyond mindfulness. That's the title of my book in, in, in the English version, Beyond Mindfulness. And there's one way, Dharma is beyond mindfulness. And there's one very simple way, I don't want to talk about this too much right now, but there's one very simple way in which we can understand the difference between mindfulness and Dharma. If we look at the Satipatthana Sutta, and I think all of us should do that, and this is the number one Buddhist Sutta which really guides the whole mindfulness movement and the insight movement uh, today in the Western world. It's the number one kind of uh, Sutta. Um, Satipatthana, the foundations of mindfulness. So the first three, there's four foundations of mindfulness. The first three foundations are body, feelings, mind, and heart. But the fourth foundation is Dharma. And there's the whole teachings of the Buddha really encapsulated in the fourth foundation of mindfulness. And the fourth foundation of mindfulness has the four noble truths and the seven factors of awakening and the hindrances and senses and, um, and other teachings. But what's interesting is it's in the context of mindfulness. In other words, you need to be mindful of the teachings in operation in your life. So it's not enough to be mindful of body. If you take seven factors of awakening mindfulness of joy where is it how is it how it's moving mindfulness of investigation how is it in this moment and this moment and this moment and next moment and when we're talking to our husband or wife or children or when we're driving to work mindfulness of investigation mindfulness of authenticity <coughs> mindfulness of um, calm mindfulness of mindfulness how does it change that being mindful of mindfulness. So we, we all the time need to look at qualities uh, of our life with mindfulness, not as Buddhist theory, but as real engagement. And those qualities of our life that shift our personality are the essence of Dharma, and it's those that we need for uh, challenges of today. <coughs> so um, the... Um, the the uh, equanimity is a really interesting one. The last words of the Buddha before he died, nearly the last words, um, were, be an island to yourself. 
And what is interesting about that is that he chose that to give as the more or less the last instruction to his monks. Of course, the image of the island has different images, but the image that he wanted to um, express is to be an island in the stormy seas. That means to be, remember what in, uh, in uh, uh, the Pali is called viveka, meaning the discrimination of what's our truth and stay with that and stay steady in our truth and stay steady with all the challenges and stay steady even if the whole society is going crazy and stay steady in uh, what's important. And it's clear that he meant that because after that, he's, the monk said, well, how do you do that? And he said, you pay attention. He used the word apamada. Apamada is like sati, like mindfulness, but a little bit more towards caring. So it's mindfulness with caring. And it's a very important word in the Pali, apamada. It's like mindfulness, but it's got another quality to it, which is to be caring. So he said to be caring, to be aware, to be mindful of, of course, of your body and of the breath and of the thoughts and of who you are, but to be mindful of your truth. And that will help you stand in difficult situations and challenges and anxiety. And when someone says to you, you know, you're peacefully minding your own business, and someone says, why don't you vote for Trump after all? <laughs> or in Israel, um, why, why, these Arabs. <laughs> That's a comment. Daily life comes a hundred times a day. Uh, what do you do with that? You need, in that, in, faced with those kind of situations, you do need to find your truth and to rest in it and to feel steady. And from that steady place, you can answer. If you're just full of anger and rage and, oh, I can't bear it, and, oh, it's, it's all coming to pieces and I'm helpless and I can't do anything in this life, it's all too big for me, da 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 These are all internal comments and it will not help you to face the challenges. So standing your ground. So one of the things we need to face is uh, the, the issue of protection. And... Uh, Usually, we have an, an, an automatic sense of protection as armor. And the armor is out there. Uh, I protect myself because if someone says something challenging to me, I shout back and I answer back. And, or I get angry. Or people in, uh, bring me into conflict and and I just get into conflict, and we shout at each other, we have different views. Or my family, you know, someone says something, no, yes, no, um, etc. This is all external protection. External protection include dependence on screens and telephones and escapes into various places that we like to escape to. <laughs> um, and, um, and our comfort zone, shutting the door of our house, saying, I can't face the world, I'm shutting myself away withdrawing is uh is 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 a protection and we find that our protection is out there all the time and our defensiveness and our reactivity but it doesn't really help us 
because external protection just creates more conflict and more issues. So we need to find internal protection, which is much more invisible and inside. And then we can face anything, because our protection is inside. We're not reactive and defensive. And that's the word of, uh, that's the, uh, the, the, ba- the basic co- quality of equanimity. It's being able to stay steady, never mind what happens, because our protection is internal. And someone can say t- anything to you. And it can be, as I say, your kids, your, your, someone at work that's really giving you hell, <laughs> or, uh, uh, your family or whatever, but, uh, or yourself. Internal conflict. But there's something inside you which allows challenge and stays steady and quiet and isn't knocked over. That's the quality of equanimity. Now, it's a quality that is there at the beginning of the practice and at the end. At the beginning of the practice, every little bit of mindfulness that we do will take us there. And the reason is that as we practice basic mindful meditation, insight meditation, we are meeting pleasant and unpleasant. And as we meet pleasant and unpleasant, we gradually find ourselves bigger than both of them. We find ourselves able to handle more easily pain and pleasure. You can say, oi and joy. <laughs> so the back may hurt oi and the hands are full of joy and I'm okay with both okay we have to do something maybe take a pill the Buddha had a doctor it's not a problem we do, we do what we need to do but it's the attitude with which we meet pleasant and unpleasant that we gradually grow a, um, a, uh, a sense of equanimity Step by step, every bit of authentic meditation, insight meditation that we do will take us there. So it's built into the practice. The three characteristics that you know about, the three marks or in Tibetan, uh, three seals uh, of dukkha, anicca, anatta, that's the experience, that's the getting close to experience that makes the change in us. Dukkha, seeing the painfulness and the limitations, and when there really is oi, we know it. And uh, anicca is seeing uh, the transience, the passing nature of all experience, whatever it is, even if it feels very stuck. And anatta is the sense that um, we're not entirely in charge of this whole life. (laughs) It's life controlling us, we're not controlling life, which we forget totally. 90% 90% of the time. Um, so our, our uh, uh, three characteristics is the power, what changes us when we meditate and when we practice. What changes us, it's the realization that every, the Buddha said, you can't find liberation any other place except in the heart of your own experience. So where what in the heart of your experience liberates, it's the three characteristics, dukkha and ichanata. What they lead to is non-attachment. 
And non-attachment is the basis for um, for equanimity. Um, you may know the Zen story of the empty boat. There is a passenger that wants to cross the river and he finds a boatman and they go off and in the middle of the river their boat got hit by another boat and the boatman started to shout at the other boat and the other boat people saying, well, look look where you're going, you're, you, how can you do this, you bumped me, us. you're not careful and uh, so... And then they went on. And then they got hit by another boat, which was empty. So the boatman didn't do anything. And the passenger afterwards said, well, why didn't you shout at the second boat? And the boatman said, well, there was no one to shout at. We can be the empty boat. The anatta, the experience of non-self, of life just happening by itself, will slowly make us more empty and then there's nobody to shout at. We don't have to defend space. We find ourselves more in spacious. Our consciousness, a liberated consciousness, a non-attached consciousness, feels like space. And space can't be hurt. It's like the instructions I gave just earlier, you know, uh, clouds can't hurt the sky. So a difficult experience can't hurt space. So the more we are non-attached, and especially the more we explore through meditation a sense of anatta or non-self, um, then uh, the more we will feel lightness, spaciousness, and, and an inner protection where we can be in the middle of any situation and and nothing needs to, nothing is a problem. So I've got just a small story from years back. I was uh, sitting with my grandchildren, two of my grandchildren, and they were screaming at each other, shouting at each other, and we were sitting on a couch, and the two of them were sitting next to me, and I think they were about five and seven years old. And they were screaming and shouting at each other, and I was sitting next to them, and I kind of uh, decided to be equanimous. <laughs> Means do nothing. And just feel what's going on and kind of radiate uh, equanimity, peace. So I felt their shouts biologically as a little kind of energy here in the tummy. But it didn't do anything. It didn't make any change in me. I didn't feel I had to, oh, stop it. Oh, you're... I didn't, nothing. I just said, okay, shouts. And then after five minutes, I turned to them and said... Um, very quietly and peacefully and equanimously, um, I said, um, um, maybe it's enough. <laughs> and they said, yes, you're right. <laughs> and I just reflected on it, a story, it's a very simple story, but I reflected, if I'd been right there at the beginning, said, shut up, stop it, stop fighting, it's another, it might have just continued, I would have been part of the problem, really. So we need, the non-attachment is very uh, uh, important and beautiful. Uh, and especially on the level of self. And we experience it as doing what we need to do, but 
letting things happen by themselves, realizing that things are actually happening by themselves. We do what we need to do, but there's something that's just rolling in life, and we let go. And the thing, we get a sense of, um, of things happening by themselves. Um, we, um, we used to do a, a lot of dialogue work with Israelis and Palestinians. We don't do so much dialogue work now. We do other things. Uh, somewhere or other today, um, the Dharma community in Israel feels uh, it needs to do more direct action. So directly going to the Palestinian community and protecting them from being attacked. But we used to do much more dialogue. And in dialogue, the equanimity was really important because it allowed a sense of relaxation. We came and the the um, Palestinian coordinator, Rauda, and myself and sometimes others, we really did practice equanimity in the middle of those situations. Because imagine bringing 15 Israelis who may be soldiers, they may be anybody, and 15 Palestinians never met before in a, in a room in a Palestinian town with God knows what's going on outside and having to kind of meet and connect and start making peace together and with so much history and so much story behind it and so much uh, past and so on. So the equanimity was really needed to let people feel relaxed and steady and okay together. And um, the Palestinian coordinator, Rauda, she learned, she had nothing to do with Dharma, but she was 10 years in Israeli prison. And during this time, because the security services found a, a letter that she had uh, from her boyfriend who was wanted by them. but So she was 10 years in an Israeli prison. And she said that... I worked for 10 years to make sure there wasn't one grain of hate in my heart. And it's so beautiful. And you can feel the non-attachment there. That's the, and it, it's, so it's, not, it's a deep truth. It doesn't, you don't have to be Buddhist for this. Nelson Mandela, I think, went through something similar. And she came out a queen with power and steadiness and charisma and ability to hold people in her community with love and care and quiet down terrible situations. So, um, um, we need for for equanimity we also need to have a big view. And the big view is that we're interested in liberation. We are constantly interested in our inner freedom. It doesn't mean that we've got to kind of be hungry for liberation and we'll read 5,000 books and then feel we're stuck and then every time we're angry, we're pissed off with ourselves because we say the Dharma doesn't work. <laughs> the Dharma works. We need patience. But the Buddha said, bend your mind to liberation. And I think that's a beautiful 
guidance. It means be interested in our inner freedom. Don't leave it. But where it takes you can take you to many places. And so as long as we kind of go there to our sense of inner freedom and spaciousness, keep going there, keep keep coming here, keep doing what we need to do in our life, keep awake, but not with an intensivity that if I'm not enlightened tomorrow, the whole thing doesn't work. <laughs> and um, and one of the places that uh, we can uh, feel the big view is in an understanding of um, of uh, causes and conditions. So if we're in conflict with somebody, for example, we can feel them. We can use mindfulness to see the bigger picture. We can see what's behind their eyes. What may be driving them? Can my heart go out to them? Because I see their struggle and I see their pain. So the cause is why they're shouting at me. If I see that, again, it's really helpful to to kind of hold the big picture. Then it becomes less personal and reactive. Um, there's a Tibetan story about uh, two people who are in the marketplace, and one got hit by a stick, and so um, the uh, he started to shout at the stick, and the other one said, "Well." Why are you shouting at the stick? You shout at least at the hand holding the stick. And he said, oh, yeah, of course. And then he, so, so uh, uh, he started to shout at the hand. And his friend said, well, maybe you shout at the person whose hand it is because he, the person is hitting you. He said, oh, yeah, okay, yeah, yeah, yeah. So he started to shout at the person. And then his friend said, well, you don't know what happened to this person. Maybe he's suffering. Maybe he's got real problems and issues and he hasn't eaten. Um, you need to shout at the conditions that caused him to hit you, <laughs> hit you with a stick. And his friend said, yes, yes. And he started to shout, but then he said, well, the conditions of the whole universe. How do I shout at everything? <laughs> so his friend said, exactly. That's the point. So if we get a bigger view, again, less personal, less, uh, less me and mine and what I need to do to defend myself, uh, against someone with opposite views or someone that's giving me a hard time or someone that's irritating me. Uh, last night in New York, so, someone was crying and said, um, I can't take it. Uh, my neighbor in my flat smokes cigarettes all the time and it's always stinking my flat and I, I had years of problems and it's affecting my health. What do I do? And... <laughs> Indeed, it's a problem. <laughs> and uh, um, But I was talking to her about, yes, you need to do something, but what's your inner attitude to something you can't control? Start to work on it. Inner attitude, it doesn't have to, it doesn't have to make your, um, undo your mind. Your mind can be free and you've got a problem to deal with, for sure. But your mind can be free as you do that. And the more spaciousness that you have inside, and the bigger the picture, the maybe the way you can talk to that person, maybe there's a way that you can understand why they're smoking, maybe there's a way that they can do it with kindness. If you're kind, maybe they can be kind back to you. Many different ways to uh, to deal with this problem, but um, you need, in a way, a bigger picture. 
So there is a, 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 a confusion sometimes about equanimity, which is that it's mixed with um, indifference and withdrawing. So many times people say, oh, I feel very equanimous. I sit here in my meditation cushion and I'm totally equanimous. <laughs> and it's a misunderstanding because equanimity is not being a kind of non-stick uh, frying pan <laughs> where stuff rolls off. Like, I don't know if you, you know, certainly it's an English expression, I don't know if it's an American expression, uh, water off a duck's back. <laughs> yeah. So that's indifference. And it, it is very easy to get them muddled up. It's very easy. They look similar. And sometimes, I don't want to put that down, sometimes you need to be indifferent. Sometimes you need protection externally. I don't want to put it down. I'm not saying that, 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 that you have to have I, just equanimity as an ideal. Going on a retreat, for example, is an act of withdrawal. An act simplifying your life, an act of leaving telephones uh, away, it is an act, in a way, of shutting the door. But we really need it sometimes. And it's really fine to decide, I can't cope now, I'm shutting the door. It's all right. But it's not instead of equanimity, and it is different from equanimity, and we just have to know that. There's a, a beautiful line, a couple of lines in uh, uh, T.S. Eliot. He said, um, there are three conditions which often look alike, and yet they differ completely, but they flourish in the same hedgerow. Attachment to self and to things and to persons, detachment from self and from things and from persons, I would say non-attachment, and growing between them indifference, which resembles the others as death resembles life. It's beautiful, strong line, huh? Beautiful. Like withdrawal looks like non-attachment, but it's subtly different, and it, it's like as death is to life meaning looking like it, part of it, but the opposite. So I just want to um, uh, express um, experience. What's, what's it look like, equanimity? Um, you're driving on the freeway, I had the experience in California, I was going around from Sangha to Sangha, center to center. I did many, um, many uh, evenings and one days at Spirit Rock and other places. And I did a lot of driving on free Californian freeways all the time. And I got quite fed up with them. <laughs> <laughs> but um, it, 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 people here, actually, in the on the... Uh, driving much nicer than Tel Aviv, I can tell you. They're, they're, they're much more considerate and polite. Even so, people can cut you off, for sure. So, you get cut off, so you're driving peacefully, minding your own business, and someone goes, whoop, 
in front of you. So you have two choices. You can react. And you can say, they're so stupid. They're, I hate these California drivers or Tel Aviv drivers. Why don't they look where they're going? He's real crazy. Uh, and you get angry and you get pissed off and you get irritated. And then you come home and you tell your partner about how terrible the drivers are. And it just stays with you. And it's basically um, stuck inside in somewhere. Or equanimity would would say, oh, someone went there. <laughs> What's it got to do with me? Okay, I have put on the brakes, but so what? <laughs> big deal, no big deal. That's equanimity. Uh, equanimity is the sense where things don't work inside us. They don't work. Difficult situations. So I know, for example, in the political sphere, you know, just to mention Trump, for many people starts things working <laughs> inside. And it works and it you know, creates worry and concern and anger and so on. It works. But it's not really the best place to go out and make change in society. We need to be more steady to make change in society. So we need to be more spacious inside that things don't work and, 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 and sort of get in there and make dialogue and make issues and start uh, our processes going and start re resentment and anger and, and so on. Um, they, um, they don't, I've got a good story. Uh, we did a lot of peace walks in the Middle East. And um, one of the people that always used to lead us because he was so impressive was a Bedouin grandfather. He was also a Bedouin muhtar, means uh, he was a kind of sheikh of his tribe. And he would come with his robes. And, and um, one day uh, we went to the town of Akar, which is on the coast, Mediterranean coast. And we were trying to do a peace walk there um, because there's lots of Jews and Arabs living in this town and we thought it was a good town to kind of recruit. We always did peace walks in the Dharma Yatra way, as in the East. Quiet, Jews and Arabs together, walking slowly, silently, and radiating uh, metta or uh, uh, compassion and heart. We walked through towns and villages, Tel Aviv, Jerusalem. We walked several times from Tel Aviv to Jerusalem, eight-day walk. And we did many of these walks. And it really was impressive. It was actually expressing something beautiful, that peace is possible. Rather than saying, shouting, we were actually demonstrating with our bodies. Peace is possible. Look, here's young Palestinians and young Israelis together, young and old, walking silently. Anyway, so we were in uh, this town and we went to visit the rabbi of this town and said, uh, can we invite some of your religious young people to join our peace walk? Um, and he looked at the um, Bedouin uh, and said, uh, grandfather, you're a grandfather like me. And the Bedouin said, yes, sure. And uh, the, the, the rabbi said, how do you make peace, actually? And he said, um, the Bedouin said, uh, uh, Abu Amin is called, 
Well, when I walk on peace walks and people shout at me, and they shout sometimes things like, go home Arab, we don't want you here. What I do is allow the shout and I feel it in me and then it just dissolves and I know that if I absorb the shout and it goes nowhere, I have made peace. Real Buddha. And that's a beautiful story of equanimity. It's exactly the story of equanimity. We can absorb the challenges and they don't work inside us and then we can calmly look at the other person or the other situation or go out and do activism with joy and inner peace. And it's the big power because what stops us often being effective in activism is the dialogue inside and the dialogue inside can say oh i'm not good at this or oh it's no point or oh you know there's no point in a peace walk because peace isn't hasn't happened in israel palestine yeah no it's true you could say we didn't do anything because the conflict is just as bad and maybe worse now than it was a hundred years ago you can say that But you can say the opposite, which is, we did something important, and we changed hearts and minds at that moment, and that was what we could do, and we did it with an open heart, and joy, and inner peace, and and it was practice. We practiced metta as we walked. So we ourselves changed through making peace. We ourselves were practicing while we were doing it. So um, the narratives that we give ourselves based on usually concern and anxiety and protection and ego and I can't do anything, it doesn't work for me, etc. Um, they're the ones that actually undo our power as in, in, to make change in society. And if we can let go of those and be fresh and open and present and not defensive, we will find we have new power. We are just, like the Buddha said, being an island, being with our truth, being with our our yeah our inner truth, and going out. Um, there, there, there's nothing in the Dharma that says the Dharma is about passivity. Nothing. The Buddha certainly wasn't passive, but he wasn't always successful. He was. He managed to stop two wars, but he couldn't stop two more. He couldn't stop his whole people being destroyed, massacred by another uh, another uh, local king because of the most stupid, stupid reason of the, the king was insulted and just massacred the whole the Buddha's people. Buddha could stop it. So we can't always stop things. We can't, we're not in charge of karma. But if we don't measure and we're steady with our truth, then we, whatever we will do will be right. We will just go out and it will be right. So equanimity really helps us to go out and, um, and, and um, uh, there's a the Buddhist text that says, um, what do you do if... Uh, someone argues with you about something. So the the text says, 
if someone argues with you and they are not very emotional and they uh, don't have um, strong views, but they're arguing with you, it's quite easy. You have a discussion. If um, they have strong views but not strong emotions, or if they have strong emotions but not strong views, then you can still talk to them, but it's hard work. <laughs> it's hard. They'll have strong views or strong emotions, and you it, it's tiring. But you still can talk to them, and you still can engage. But if they have both strong views and, both, and strong emotions, forget it, <laughs> said the Buddha. <laughs> but the bottom line of this text is the Buddha said never underestimate the power of equanimity so your equanimity can make a change even in the non-verbal place where you can simply make a change imagine imagine you're in the middle of an argument with uh, there's other people around you arguing and fighting. Supposing you just sat quietly in the middle of that with equanimity, the chances are the other people would quieten down because you would present another way of being, which is equanimous. You can influence, yeah, and you can influence other people's anger other people's uh, defense and nervousness and, and irritation uh, by your equanimity. One person in the middle of, you know, um, like the first line of the Rudyard Kipling's poem, If, you know, if you can keep your head when everyone else is losing yours, theirs, sorry, if you can keep your head when everyone else is losing theirs, it does something. So, um, um, and it's important to feel the pain of the world. Again, instead of indifference, you can feel the pain of the world. You don't shut down. You can cry. You can feel the pain. But it doesn't need to destroy you. And it's important to sense the pain of samsara, the pain of others, the pain around. To Yes, there is so much pain. But if you are equanimous, it doesn't need to destroy you. So I want to spend a few minutes now just going to equanimity at the highest level. Because we're here as Dharma practitioners and I think it's important that um, you hear a few words about equanimity at the highest level. Because equanimity is a quality that is basically the last of the seven factors of awakening. It's the last of the ten paramis. It's one of the four Brahma Viharas. I won't go into a description of what these lists are if you don't know them. <laughs> I don't have time for that now. Uh, but I wrote a lot about it in my book and in my uh, talks. I, my online courses, I have an online course on the Ten Paramis. I have an online course on self and non-self. I have an online course on Paticca Samuppada. I'm 
my online courses are on deep dharma because I'm not interested in online courses on beginner's mindfulness. So they do go deep into the dharma. So there's lots of stuff there that, that you can um, learn. But um, equanimity is the final, in a way, quality uh, before, before awakening or that's connected with awakening. And I want to explain why. Because the um, the subtle aspect of equanimity is to do with you and the world. So if you are more empty, like the empty boat, then what, hap- what happens is that the world comes in instead of the self. It takes the place of the self. So instead of being a self operating everything and a center from me, the subject that I have to deal with and I have to protect myself and I have to defend myself and so on. Equanimity is the opposite direction. It's non-self. What happens when you are more empty, more spacious, less selfing? What happens is your connection with the world opens and you and the world become one. So there is a dissolving into the world. And when you dissolve into the world, it's no longer possible to say, who is hurting whom? Because who is the world and who is you? And that's at the deepest subtle level of uh, what happens when, there's, when the, the self is, is less dominant and it's a direct result of Dharma practice. You and the world become merged. And there is a sense of infinity. And in that infinity, who's hurting whom? Like I said about space, who can hurt the sky? So where's the world and where's you? So that's at the, at the very deepest level. And, and it, at that level, in a way, every experience becomes the raw material for awakening. Senses, you hear something, and it becomes the raw material for awakening. Someone cuts you off, on the freeway, it's also the raw material for awakening. Uh, an argument, someone says, tells you their pain, you look with compassion and a big heart and you feel their pain and you are part of them and then you can help them. You're part of the world and so the world and you as one flow will, um, will in a way protect, mean you cannot be hurt. As I say, you can cry, you can die, someone can hurt you, of course. Uh, you can get sick, everything can happen. It's sure, the Buddha got sick, and well, of course, all the, life will happen. But um, you are not the one that is busy with uh, protection. You do what you need to do. The Buddha had a doctor, like I said. You do what you need to do. Do your life, of course. Don't say, I can't take a medicine because I'm equanimous. <laughs> so I won't take an antibiotic and I'll die. Equ- die equanimously. Equanimously. <laughs> um, that's not the point. Um, so the image in one of the suttas of this, at the highest level, the, the Buddha said it's like um, uh, gold, that every experience becomes like gold. And you become like the goldsmith. 
so that uh, well I've got I've got the sutta here actually I'll read it um, at the end of the practice there remains only equanimity which is purified which is bright which is workable which is shining it's just like a goldsmith will take gold and then will heat it and then put in the gold uh, in the furnace and time to time it will burn and time to time he'll blow on it and time to time he'll put water on it and from time to time just look at it and the gold will be very well refined and will be rid of all impurities and will be flexible and will be shining and you can make this gold into any object that you want and that in the end all that's left is equanimity. So let's um, let's just have one minute just to reflect quietly, and then I'm ha- really happy to open it to questions. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.